0: listening to the voice of Howard Stewart. Hello, you rotten little sucker. This is Alice Cooper. Hey, this is Justin from NSYNC. This is Rodney Dane. Uh, hey, baby. How uh, is the hey Hi, this is Jack. Just back up from the border for a short visit. You know what I'm talking about, pal. Hi there and welcome to another edition of The Horse's Mouth. You're in The Horse's Mouth and my name is John Teague. Whoever you are out there in the world, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, I hope this finds you well. Uh, Yeah, so today I had the good fortune of speaking with none other than Susie Brown. Now, for those of you that know Susie, you know um, what an amazing, beautiful, colourful human being that she is. Um, A life of... A life well lived, still well lived. Um, great friend, I've known Susie now for I don't know the good part of twenty five years, and just it's it's nice to be on a journey with her you know dovetailed different sections of my life with her life and um had some pretty wild times and um and and today some 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 good chat times you know like we all grow and evolve uh so I won't waffle on too much more about that I'll let you just experience out uh, my conversation with Susie which I just loved um so what else um well, AI is frightening, isn't it? If you're not frightened of AI, I, I don't know. That's the dog drinking. She must be thirsty. Um, if you're not frightened of AI, I mean, I don't, I'm frightened of AI. I'm not frightened. I'm frightened of lots of shit. That's not true. I was going to say I'm not frightened of much, but there's a few things to frighten me. Um, but AI is definitely up there. Now, what the fuck with humans, right? What do you think that human beings, like, we just think, yeah. Like, let's invent something that's kind of not real that will end up being smarter than us and do our work for us. Like, I'm inherently – I'm pretty fucking lazy. I'm lazy. Like, at my core, I love to drink coffee, lie around. That's an oxymoron. Um, But it happens. And, uh, you know, binge on Netflix, chill out, surf. I like the simple life. So the thought of AI doing everything that I don't want to do is – sounds good on paper but when you really think about it and you think about the destruction that humans are causing on earth and you invent something that's going to think well hold on what the fuck are you guys doing if you invented us to be smarter it's pretty clear that you guys are the ones that are fucking it up i mean how can that not be like i love humanity but how can that not be the natural thought of this smart I don't know where they are. They look like little Smarties. Tiny little Smarties all thinking together. Um, and, and and then those Smarties turn into like some sort of fucking weapon. I don't know. I mean, I've seen Terminator. I know where this goes. And so then when you read the BBC the other day, I bookmarked it, but I don't know where it is now. You read the BBC and and they're thinking about uh AIing the um You know when then the 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 so when the bombs are coming in the the anti anti anti-missiles the the anti-missiles yeah really smart wording there um let's try defense system the (laughs) anti-defense defense system that the ais are in charge of now they're gonna have to america's gonna have to make its defense system ai to combat other countries ai offensive systems like that's fucking Skynet or whatever it is from Terminator is it not and that's in the BBC and we're supposed to just swallow that fuck anyway um, I could go on there's more but I won't I won't because I don't want to give you all anxiety that I'm suffering about the AI right now Um, but really I mean why, if we are naturalistic, we are part of nature. Why do we think we are apart apart a from it when we are a part of it? And we know that when we're in nature, we feel connected. When we're looking at, you know, it's the, when we boil it down, we're still animals. Yet we think that this thing that's not. I know I'm not. I know if you're listening to this, you're, you're probably not on the AI team, but uh it just it bamboozles me. Um, Do do what with that you will. Fucking hell. I'm lost for my words today. Anyway, whoever you are out there, I hope you are well. Just food for thought. Like, you know, do we have to swallow everything that's coming? Like, I I, I constantly hear it from people. Just take it. It's the future. It's just what it is. You can't stop it. You can't stop progress. But, But is it right? I mean, I don't know. I'm a little bit lost with it because... Although Star Wars is pretty good. I do like Star Wars and the thought of Star Wars is cool. Um, but then that's the, the Jedi is plugged into nature. That's the Force. Uh, I'll shut up. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Susie Brown. And uh, i see you on the other side. All right. Adios. You think this is, is interesting? Wow. Wait till you hear two hours of crap.
1: A complete and total farfarama. Are going to help.
0: Hello. Hello. No, Green... Oh, he's got a new podcast, I think, but he's got a book out that he's just released called Green Light.
1: Green Light?
0: Yeah. Oh, I'll have to... It's really good, actually. I... And he's
1: got podcasts, I notice. Every time I go into podcasts, there's his face.
0: Yeah, well, I think he's just started one off the back of this book. Green Light. Yeah. But he's, um, I mean, you know, he seems to be... He treads the line pretty well. And you know what I really loved about listening to Matthew McConaughey and listening to him? You know how you have a reoccurring thought or a dream or something and you can just sort of fob it off? He will instinctually go, oh, that's I need to go and find out. And he's like bounced out and gone traveling to weird countries off the back of a dream. You know, just going... To find out what
1: it all means. Yeah, what's the
0: sub- why is the subconscious pushing me here? Is there something I'm meant to go and learn there?
1: But don't you do that with your dreams? Oh. They reckon they're so, they've got so much to do with our day-to-day life, our dreams. They shouldn't just be ignored. They should really be looked into.
0: Well, I think they should, definitely, but I've never gone overseas on the back of what No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, you I know No, no. I might have had a conversation with someone over a coffee. Yeah, you
1: know? but they're so powerful yeah they've got to mean something
0: and so then he's all about this like energetic thing where if uh he has like he's getting too tight on something he will just go off on an adventure somewhere to re ground and group and and then come back not as needy you know and it just sort of I don't know. There's a lot of takeaways in that book for me. I was like, because I've had this thing recently where I'm like, I really want to drive through the middle of Australia, maybe do the Gun Barrel Highway across to the west, and it keeps coming up. And I'm like, well, if I had the balls, I would just fucking do it.
1: Yeah. Why don't you just fucking do it? I
0: think I, think I just You <laughs> fucking should. You
1: fucking should. <laughs> just fucking do it. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> that would be fun.
0: So tell me this, I don't, you know, I remember clearly when you came into my life.
1: I remember clearly when you came into my life, <laughs> into my life. <laughs> doing uh, somersaults off the bar. <laughs> really good somersaults.
0: Really? I fucking you, don't even remember You used that to bit. stand
1: on our bar and you would jump off and you would land on the back here do and do these perfect somersaults and keep going. Oh, like commando rolls. Yeah, commando <laughs> rolls. You were fucking sensational. I'd go, Tiki, do that again. Watch this. Watch Tiki. <laughs> He's really good. And you'd be, whoa, off your head. having the best time ever? Uh,
0: you know. Big I, grin
1: on your face. You always had a huge grin on your face.
0: Well, that, honestly, I was thinking about it and, like, if there was ever a cheers moment in my life, <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh,
0: like that was it. I felt like I was at home every yeah, time I was in
1: yeah. there. Fuck, sensational, wasn't it? It's the sac- best times of it. Everyone still says best times of our lives. <laughs> and and
0: I remember though, I was pretty fearful of you at the start because I was doing, I was, I think, pushed into being a dishy there for a bit. Oh, right. Do you remember that?
1: Yeah, vaguely, yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I was think, a bitch. Yeah, I, I just don't think I was fast enough for the job.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was a bitch to work for. God, I was a shocker.
0: But you were great to drink with. Yeah,
1: yeah, good to drink with. Yeah. Didn't really know how to do do uh, staff, though. Wasn't really good at that. I had no patience. Oh, God. It's a nightmare thinking about that. So good. Yeah.
0: So, um, now, <coughs> we came in there, but growing up for you, did was
1: Torquay always part of your life? Yes. Yeah. Dad. Well, as I said Dad started coming down to Torquay when he was seventeen. That was with the Wesley swimming team. And then he met Mum and brought her down, and they got married. Um, and they got a campsite, Torquay, and we've been there ever since. And now the third generation of us are down there, all grew up there. Sixty-nine years, Mum had the same campsite.
0: Sixty nine years.
1: She's ninety two now, and she stopped camping five years ago because it all got a bit much. She still goes down there because my niece and nephew have got campsites there, which were handed down to them from Gladys, Gladys Nichols, China's sister, who's mum's best friend. Well, they're all 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 those people are dead now. Mums, mums, there's about four of them left in the that were in the camp from Vargas Vane Valley, we called it, camping area. (laughs) And there's four women left, but they're all 92, 95. So we, yeah, I was two weeks old when mum and dad brought me down to the camp, took me down to the camp. So was my sister. So we were two weeks old and we grew up there every weekend, every Easter, um, every holiday. And then our kids all grew up there and now their kids, kids are all growing up there. So it's the history of that camping area is just huge,
0: and for so many people, yeah. it's been such a like institution of
1: sorts. <sighs> I met, I still know people I met there when I was a kid, you know. Um, but yeah, it's a huge institution, and and just such a perfect way to grow up, you know. You'd grow, you'd wake up listening to the surf every morning from when you were really little, and birds tweeting. You know, and that was when the ice chest used to come around and you'd go and get the ice, big blocks of ice for the Kulgadi cool ice chest. That's how, that was the fridge. Did you know what they were? No. They were like wooden boxes and you'd put the ice in the, a section at the top, blocks of ice that big yeah. in the section at the top and shut the doors and the bottom would be cool from the ice block. That was the fridge.
0: And what they put in it?
1: beer oh yeah of course they had they had (laughs) eskies for beer and i yeah yeah. um milk and stuff you use for fridge yeah yeah yeah, that's that was our fridge in the camp and you'd wake up in the morning to her old son and the age and the paper boy would be going around with the papers and you'd all run out with sixpence sixpence used to buy us a paper yeah, it was it was just sensational times.
0: Isn't it a trip though? Like the, the um, how much more communal life was mm. and engaged with people, whether you knew them or not.
1: Yeah, you knew everyone. You know, in the end, you knew everyone, and they're all still good friends now. You know, a lot of them are passed, but um, you know, those families will always be in our lives that we met there 60 years ago. <laughs> 65 years ago <laughs> yeah um, and you know those women all lived to a really old age and I reckon it was the cold beer the parties and the ocean air you know they used to sleep outside and, uh, Norma Walker who's Sprinty's wife Sprinty and um, Jim Wall were two of the founders of the Torquay Surf Club so they camped near us And Nor- Nor- Sprinty died a long time ago but Norma used to sleep outside under the stars and she, till she was about 93 when she died.
0: What, what with a swag or what yeah, do you mean? yeah, yeah, just with
1: the swag. But she, and they drank and they partied and they laughed and they smoked and they went to the beach every day and they all lived to ripe old ages, not the men but the women. And they always put it down to the sea air, the beer and the laughter, you know. Do you
0: think it was because they didn't quite drink as hard as the men? They had maybe. new tolerance a bit more or maybe not? I yeah,
1: no, they didn't drink as much as the men. The men were big drinkers and they all died, at a, you know, years ago.
0: But then you hear of people dying super young too, you, know? Yeah. you just don't know.
1: yeah, but I think the sea air just keeps people young, you know. It's so good for you. It's so therapeutic.
0: I remember when I was 18 and living in the West, this older guy that I used to hang around with and surf with a bit, he used to tell me to have a tablespoon of salt water every day to keep the youth. And I believed in for
1: <laughs> <laughs> Did it not work?
0: I don't know. I was always having a this bloke. And just...
1: Well, there's something in it.
0: Yeah. It's salt. I think you just, if you're in the ocean, you're sort of just having it anyway without it's trying.
1: It's so good. Yeah. Yeah, it's good for everything.
0: But it's a reset. It's just <clears throat> something in the negative ions here yeah, mm. in the water. Yep. So then, um, and how was school for you?
1: I went to um, Sandringham State School first, I lived in Sandringham, family home was Sandringham, Bluff Road, and then I went to Furbank Junior School in uh, Sandringham, and then I went to Furbank, I was Furbank Brighton, Furbank Church of England Girls Grammar School in Brighton.
0: Yeah, from Brighton.
1: Yes, can't you tell, I'm from Brighton. Yeah. Um and I was expelled from there, basically. for? <laughs> smoking. Smoking? With the boys, smoking with...
0: That's an expulsion?
1: N- no. W- well, we did a lot of naughty things. Um, not expelled. We were... We were... Um, what's it called when they give you three months' homework and you have to do it in a week? You know, the other thing. Suspension. Oh. Lots of suspensions. Yeah. And they give you a whole lot of work and you're not allowed back to school. We used to um, hang with the Hampton High boys, Bung and Fledge and Iggy at lunchtime, They'd come up in their combi vans, or Fledge was the only one that could drive then. (laughs) He was 17. The rest, we were all 15. And we used to hang with them and smoke cigarettes, and we always got caught, and we used to hitch our uniforms up to mini skirts and pull our socks down and take our gloves and hats off and Yahoo with the with Hand the, <laughs> and I boys, sometimes the Brighton Grammar boys. That was our brother's school. You know, I had dancing class with the Brighton Grammar boys. My first boy, boyfriend was a Brighton Grammar boy, Bill Stewart. Um, but, um, yeah, it was a great school, and I think we abused the system a lot because it cost us a shitload of money <laughs> to send us there. But all we wanted to do was be in Torquay, you know, with the Surfy Boys. So um, we'd we'd leave school Friday afternoon, lie to our parents where we were going, and jump in Fledge's car and drive down the coast with Bong and Iggy and Fledge, and tell our parents we were at each other's houses. I don't know why they were so trusting, but seriously, we were never at each other's houses. <laughs> we're always down here. Um, yeah, but we were. I loved school. I really did. I really enjoyed school. I loved learning. I loved learning about stuff. But, you know, we were just a bit naughty, a bit wild. Yeah. We didn't conform like a lot of those girls did. And I sort of left those friendships because I found the ones that wanted to party, drink and smoke. And, um, you know, the academics that I was friends with sort of got rid of them. Because, you know, we had nothing in common. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's funny, you go your way and everyone goes their way. There's no hard feelings, It's everyone's on their own We just, journey. Yeah,
1: we had a journey. It yeah. was down here, you know. We just wanted to be surfy moles. We wanted to hang with the surfy boys. Not that we did anything back then. We were quite prim and proper that way, you know.
0: And how were your parents about that t- decision? Do they think you should go to uni, or they didn't really?
1: Oh, you know? look, you know that's a that's a sore point with me, and I brought it up recently with mum. That when I left school, um, I, I left after year eleven. I didn't do matric. All my friends did matric, but and I, to this day, I'm not sure why. I just thought that I couldn't do it, but I probably could have killed it, really. And then um, all my friends went off to uni or teacher's college, and I worked in a supermarket after I finished school. And there was no encouragement from mum and dad about what I should do. And I brought this up recently with mum and she said, I just thought you were so headstrong, Sue, that you would decide what you wanted to do. And nothing we said was gonna sway your decision. And I thought that's interesting because that's what they thought. But I used to come home for lunch um, working at this supermarket. I was in the accounts department, not on the till, and cry. I would just cry my eyes out thinking, what am, what am I doing? I was 17 and I'm working in a supermarket and all my friends were off organising careers, you know. Um, but, yeah, that was tough because I felt like I was. I should have been doing, I was so much better, you know, I should have been studying, I should have been a teacher, I should have been a teacher. You know, I still think that now. I worked in childcare. I was really good at that stuff, you know. But then I, um, I was fortunate because I Dad knew the managing director of SSC and BLINTAS, Peter Bennett, and he asked him if he'd give me a job. So my 18 years in advertising agencies started when I was 18, and I was there 18 years, drunk. Drunk. I worked in every advertising agency in Melbourne. I was sacked from every advertising agency in Melbourne for not coming back for lunch.
0: On a long lunch.
1: Yeah, the long lunch. Fridays, we'd be in the same place for lunch as we were for dinner and had the best time of my life. You know, worked at the Campaign Palace, the best agency in Melbourne, twice, was sacked from there because the new boss came in and I was, was after lunch and I was hanging from the rafters <laughs> making monkey noises and monkey faces and the, my new boss came in and sacked me on the spot. <laughs> you know, i um, general manager of Lionel Hunt, the general manager of the Campaign Palace, snorting cocaine off my boobs, you know, <coughs> Friday afternoon parties. Glenn Shorek, Joe Shorek, Glenn's wife, worked with us. So Glenn, we we toured with Little River Band, Shez and I, because they were mates. But Glenn and I used to do these floor shows on... Friday nights, everyone would come to the campaign pallets because it was the cream of advertising agency. I don't know if you remember it. Gordon Trembath and Lionel Hunt, Scott Wyburn. And we used to have these Friday night parties and I'd be up on the table. You know, they had this beautiful, expensive table and it was just full of stiletto holes by the time I finished because I'd get up there and sing if I could turn back time and everyone would sway to me on the table singing. They got my own microphone in the end. They got me my own microphone because I was using beer bottles. Or um, And the Friday night parties, everyone would come from everywhere. You know, Armstrong Studios, um, all the all the clients had come. And they were just notorious Friday night parties. And Glenn Shorrock and I would do, you know, you, you're the one that I want. And I'd be on the table and I would jump on him. And he would, you know, wrap my legs around his waist and we'd go, whoo. You're the one that I want. He'd be John Travolta and I'd be living in John. And everyone so would good. Oh, it's just the best time. It was it was the best time of my life. But you know, just I was drunk through the whole thing. I seriously, you know, you would just be you know, I mean my boss my bosses used to say if you want something out of Brownie, you've got to get her in the mornings because after lunch she's fucked. <laughs> she can't do a thing after lunch. You know, we did we did some really good work. We had some really good clients. I was doing the 3DB radio ads. That was just my baby. They gave that to me, so I'd interview, you know, media people um, for the ads. And I had a deadline at five o'clock on Friday, so that always stopped me drinking till five o'clock on Fridays, which was a good thing. Um, yeah, and we got a tour, we toured with Little River Band because of that, because. Glenn, the, that was 1978, and they were, they were huge in America. Huge. And they said, You want to come? And Chez and I were like, Yes, please. So we toured with them for six weeks with Molly Meldrum and John Dick and some really cool people. Molly? Yeah, Molly was on the bus with us for a while in Miami. And um, Little River Band's manager, John Dick. Um, oh, yeah, we, were, we stayed in the Sunset Boulevard Hotel. And um, did lines of coat with Robert Palmer.
0: No way. Simply he, irresistible.
1: Yeah, he was in the room next to, on the same floor as us, as was the Blondie Band, Deborah Harry. Deb ha- yeah, Harry? Yeah. We, she, we, the band were really friendly, but she was, um, she's got a heart of stone.
0: <laughs> really? A little <That'll> standoffish.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, no, she's, she's, yeah, she, but we, yeah, Robert Palmer called us in and, he had lines of Coke. Can I say all this? Yeah. He had lines of Coke like this. Do you want to do some lines with us? And Chez and I sat down and I just looked at her and I went, Whoever would have thought we'd be doing Coke with Robert Palmer at the Sunset Boulevard Hotel in in LA, you know?
0: And was this, had his song come out yet, Simply Irresistible?
1: 1978. Yeah. Yeah, he was huge. Uh, and,
0: you know, all, I just remember that because, like, you keep saying these things and I keep thinking of Saturday Morning Rage and just watching all the film clips in the 80s. I was just obsessed with them. Yeah. And here's one with all the girls that would just keep coming out. Oh, uh, yeah. And I was just like, oh, my God, who is Robert Palmer?
1: Yeah, yeah, guy? yeah. Oh, yeah, he was famous. He was famous. But that was a, that was the best time ever. You know, Glenn Shorrock just put his arms around Shez and Joe and I and say, these are, th- these are my girls. You look after them. So we had VIP treatment everywhere we went, you know, limos with champagne and cocaine and
0: backstage. You got backstage in the and, 80s. <clears throat> yeah, 70,
1: 78, yeah. 78, all right. And Little River Band were just huge. I was blown away. The crowds, the arenas were just huge, millions and millions, just screaming at them, loving them. And we were with the band, you know. <laughs> that was yeah, a good time. Good. Yeah, it was great.
0: So, did you come back and go back to advertising?
1: Yes, I did. I came back from there '78, and I worked in advertising for another few years. I actually did two stints at the Palace. Did a long stint working for Peter Russell Clark at g'day. Macius. G'day, Peter. yeah, Russell. G'day, Clark. Did the Come and Get It's with him. Filmed the Come and Get It's with him did and you really? his wife Jan who shares a birthday with me.
0: The first thing I ever cooked was from that show. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> was it chicken breast?
0: No, it was... <laughs> cut a hole, a circle and toast. <laughs> and then... Toad in the hole? Yeah, I think then you toast it or you put it in the fry pan and drop the egg into the hole.
1: Yeah, toad in the hole. I think I hole.
0: gave it to mum or dad as the first thing I cooked.
1: Yeah, right. well, I had two and a half years as his personal assistant.
0: What was he like?
1: Oh, my God. What was he like? Does
0: he have a restaurant in Marimbula or something?
1: No. Oh no, not that I know. He had Soho Farm in Drysdale and two houses, one in Croydon and one in Parkville, when I worked for him. But I haven't, they came to Bird Rock to eat a few times, Peter and Jan, and that's the last time I saw them, although I just saw Peter back on TV doing, a, doing an ad. He's probably eighty, he'd be 84 or 85 now. Um, that was insane. We, um, we got on really well except when we didn't. And After a million drinks, he um, would turn. And once we had a client lunch and he upended a table that was covered in everything onto me <clears throat> at this very classy restaurant.
0: What were you guys disputed? Fighting.
1: We used to fight like cat and dog, just <sighs> screaming at each other, both really drunk. We'd, we'd just get really, we were just volatile and um, and then I'd he'd say, oh, you know, he'd apologise and I'd, he'd show, say, show us your tits, I'd show him <laughs> the tits and, and it'd all be over. <laughs> used to calm him down. <laughs> but we ha- we got on so well, but it was such a volatile relationship. We were like husband and wife, you know, it was just... But we did a lot of good stuff together. Like we did um, his cookbooks, so I helped him help. You know, obviously I was the secretary, right-hand man, assistant, so I did all the you know the putting together and the typing of the books and the editing and the layouts and work with the photographers and it was a really good job right like we did good stuff apart from the drinking but we we'd have these you know we had so much money clients money we'd go to the best restaurants in melbourne and we'd stay there for hours and we'd drink french champagne and put it all on job numbers you know dunlop 4832 that'll do you know, that was the cream of the time in advertising. I, I got the best of it because it all ended when I left and around that time. There were no more lunches. There were no more job numbers to be used. There was, you know, they clamped right down. So we were so blessed. We were <laughs> blessed to be there that time. Yeah, it was good fun. But I work, and I work, for, um, I work for Philip Adams. Do you know Philip Adams? mm oh, he's a he's a writer media personality it's on the ABC he's got his own show on the ABC I work with him at MDA so Monaghan David like Adams a
0: research journalist or what's his bag
1: Philip Adams is he's a really well known journal started off as I feel bad um yeah he's he's uh journo author um radio presenter he's done a lot of stuff mm. Yeah, if you look him up, you'll.
0: I probably know his face.
1: Yeah, but um, I got sacked from there too. Not him; he didn't sack me. <laughs> uh, I won't tell you how I got sacked.
0: Come Go on. There. <laughs> nah. Um,
1: but you know, I got sacked from most of them, and then I worked at um, I worked at USP Needham as well, which was a great time, and I had this boss who. Um, yeah, I got sacked from there as well. <laughs> we were just outrageous when I think about it, you know, inappropriate behaviour to to the max. But everyone was doing it, you know. It just didn't matter. There were no morals. There was no. There was no. Everyone slept with everybody. You know, like there was a meeting at the campaign palace once about sexual harassment in the workplace, and it was about me <laughs> harassing them, the men. <laughs> and the boss said, It has to stop, Brownie. I went, Oh, why am I going to amuse myself now? <laughs> Brownie has to stop sexually harassing us. <laughs> you know, because my line of, supposed suppose it fucks out of the Christian, and you want to see my tits. <laughs> Everyone saw my tits. Well, same at The Rock. I remember, I remember once I was down the beach with um, a group of girls and, and a whole lot of young boys from uh, local boys that drank at the rock walk towards us and I started to cover my boobs and one of them yelled out, why are you doing that? We've all seen them. <laughs> <laughs> they were good back then. Now I get bruised knees. <laughs> they were great back then. Um, yes, yeah, so 18 years in advertising. Um,
0: I didn't know that. I didn't know any of this. But how did I know any of this? Or maybe you did tell me one night and I was drunk.
1: Yeah, maybe. But, yeah, that was a long stint. Um, And then I met Gary um, and moved to Torquay, I think, just after that. That was 1989.
0: Where did you meet Gary?
1: I'd known Gary for years because he was – I got married in between all that, six years married to Tang, Emily's dad. Um, he was a good mate of Tank's. They used to share a house in Phillip Island, Gary Brown and my ex husband.
0: Partying with the Skyhawks? Mm? Party with the Skyhawks, Sherlock Curl and
1: that? Yeah, we knew him very well. Yeah. yeah, he was a good mate of ours. Very sad. Yeah, good mate of ours. Tank used to surf with him a lot down at the island. And Clemmy, Clem Bell was down there then, Terry Clem. Yeah. Um, and then. Um, Tank and I used to drink at the Bleak House Hotel in South Melbourne and Gary's parents owned that so I used to run into him there and then Tank and I used to visit Gary in Torquay and then when Tank and I broke up I ran into Gary at a party just around the corner from here this is like, it was probably over a 10 year period I kept running into Gary Brown but still nothing happened you know, g'day Gaz, how are you? G'day, Suze. You know, nothing ever happened. I, I never would think I'd be with anyone like him, you know. Like, it wasn't really my style.
0: <laughs> and, what, do you, what do you mean by that?
1: Oh, because I sort of went out with... Um, in Melbourne, I, all my boyfriends were either... Except for the surfy crew, which was a, a totally different part of my life. But my normal life in Melbourne was with... Halebury boys, you know, very good looking Halebury boys I went out with or Brighton Grammar boys, but they were private school boys who were always good looking, you know, with lots of money. And then there's Brownie (laughs) who had these, who just looked like a homeless person back then. (laughs) He really did. So he wasn't really my type, but, um, as soon as, and then I ran into a party round the corner from here and I was single and he was single and, um, He came down to the camping area the next day because Emily was five when I met Gary and she was down in the camp with Mum and I was and he came down on his bike uh, to pursue me and on his bike he had a slab of diet ale and Dad, to the day he died, never forgave Gary for bringing down diet ale, even though they drank it together.
0: What is diet ale?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's... (laughs) 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 It's (laughs) ale with no... Sugar, I guess.
0: But it was still alcoholic.
1: It was alcoholic, yeah, 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 yeah. But Dad Why did he was buy a good diet ale. We don't know. Dad was a big beer drinker and he's just he's going sue. I don't think he can be with this <laughs> this man. He he drinks diet ale, you know. But anyway, they drank the slab. And then I went out with him a week later, it was New Year's Eve, it was my first date with Gary and we went to a party around the corner in Womba Park. Um And he was all dressed up in a suit and he was thrown in the pool. I'll never forget this. My first date and he was thrown in the pool. And when he came up in his suit, he was one of the first to be thrown in. And when he came up out of the water, he had these two big green candles hanging out of his nose. And I thought, you know what? I just laughed and I went like this you know I mean I must like this guy because any any other time I would have walked away <laughs> that sort of thing's just no not right just so wrong <laughs> anyway that was our first date and um, I went out with him I came down every weekend like I was leaving the advertising agency early on Fridays and getting back later on Mondays spending the weekend down here and M would go to the camp and I'd or she'd come with me to his place in Follett Street just around the corner where we, our family home. Um, And then it just got ridiculous because I was, my boss said to me, you know, you can't keep coming. This one morning I came in so hungover, you know, at 10 o'clock to the agency that was in St Kilda Road and I had an old faded rip curl T-shirt of Gary's on and Ugg boots and I reeked of alcohol. And my boss said to me, with all due respect, Brownie, why don't you just move down there, you know? And I thought, yeah, why don't I? <laughs> so with <clears throat> um just before that, my flatmate, when I left Richard Tank, Emily and I moved in with an old friend of ours, Gidget, who was gay, and he was we were we he became like a father to emily beautiful man i'd known him for 30 years um and we were really happy the three of us in north east brighton we lived um and just after that is when um, anyway gidget committed suicide and died in my arms he he'd taken 68 quinine tablets and a bottle of bourbon and i got home and he said to me because my line to him was, I oh, shut up, you fucking old drama queen. You know, it was just... And he, he answered the door with no clothes on and said, I've just killed myself. And I said, I oh, shut up, you fucking old drama queen. And he had. And I lay down with him and um, thought I've got to call an ambulance. Because he said, have a look in the dustbin. And there was this empty bottle of quinine tablets. He used to have quinine tablets because he went to New Guinea a lot. And he... would It was empty, and I knew it was full. So he'd taken sixty-eight and drunk it down with a bottle of bourbon. So he died on the floor of of our house. So that was horrendous, obviously. And then, and and just as that happened, I met Gary, and he said, "Come down, you just come down and live." So I had nothing in Melbourne. I'd lost. I'd had my second DUI, so I had no license. Campaign Palace gave me this beautiful sensational pink and black two-wheeler bike with um, a basket on the back for my cask, they said. (laughs) Perfectly, perfect size for my (laughs) cask. No licence, no flatmate. So, yeah, we moved down. Emily and I moved down. She was five. So that was um, the beginning of my time living here.
0: Now, sorry, but I feel so sorry. for. did Did you know he was suffering so badly?
1: Not really. Look, he was... He was a bit of a loner. Like, he had a million friends. All our crowd were all his friends as well. Lots and lots and lots of mates. But I don't think anyone really took him seriously. And I think he was asexual because he didn't sleep with men. He used to go to gay... Um, saunas and come home and cry in my arms he was so depressed about having to go to gay saunas but he wasn't sexually active with women or men I think he slept with one woman so he was just lonely but he was one of those characters who I've said a lot about him in my book actually he he would throw his head back and laugh and he was immaculately dressed and looking and his clothes were always beautiful and he had he worked for Jeff Bade Fashions because Martin Bade's a good mate of ours. So he worked in Flinders Lane in the, in the rag trade and he's, he had impeccable taste and he was always smelt beautiful and he'd smoke with a cigarette holder and drink the best wines and big drinker, huge drinker, um, but always throw his head back and laugh. He just had this beautiful aura about him, you know, and every time he'd laugh, everyone would laugh, you know. And it was all an act because he was absolutely miserable. And he, I rang him that day and I said, um, we've been invited to Kim's for dinner. And he said, oh, I've got other plans. And that was to kill himself. But I didn't believe it until he actually died. I was still thinking, yeah, yeah. I was still going, come on, Gidget. If you, I kept saying, if you die, I'll never speak to you again, you know. Still thinking that he was not going to die. So that was just horrendous. And we had to, you know, the cops came and um, I had a bong with flowers in it. So they're saying, you know, the questions, did you give him drugs? Do you do drugs here? Why is that bong there? I said, it's got fucking flowers in it, you know. And the counsellor came and sat on the bed with me and, you know, it was just like, thank God Emily wasn't there. Um, It was just... Is this really happening? Oh. You know, and then I had to ring his parents and all our mates, and no one, no one could believe it. They just thought I was bullshitting. What do you mean? What do you mean? You know? Um, yeah, it was awful.
0: I look at the eighties so, you know, I was a kid, but so fondly, but you know, like it was. I think it's such a special time but such a time when so many people suffered that were in minority groups Mm. because no one was not everyone was as open-minded as they are today and we didn't know as much about Mm. mental health and like you know sort of a uh.
1: well it was ignored you know he had a great group of friends called the gay young bachelors he was the only gay one the others were just blokes who drank a hell of a lot and partied a hell of a lot and got rid of their girlfriends or wives to do so, you know. And Gidget was the only gay guy.
0: But they all called themselves the gay, the gay young,
1: young bachelors. We used to have these. Lark. Yeah, it's yeah. just as a lark. We used to have these parties in this house we rented that would go for days, you know. And they were all just, it was, I mean, my whole life has been surrounded by really heavy party, animal drinking, dope smoking, and in latter years, drug taking Lunatics, You know, what hope did I have? (laughs) That's what I grew up with. And, you know, the first time I opened my eyes and recognised anything was, you know, when I was a baby, obviously, and everyone around me would have a drink in one hand, a fag in the other. You know, like Boothie and Chyna Gilbert and Dad and all all the blokes and the women, they all chain-smoked. And that was my life growing up in the camp area. It was so much fun, but... It was just normal to have a drink in one hand and a fag in the other. That's what everyone did. Mm. So, you know, apart from probably being born an alcoholic, it's like where else was I going to go? You know, it was like the norm.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, (laughs) mum professes these days that she smoked a fair few darts when I was in the tummy, you know. Yeah. This is the norm of the time, I think.
1: Yeah. I drank. I mean, I, drink, I try not to drink through my pregnancy, but because I was an alcoholic, I did. Not that there's anything wrong with Emily, I don't think. That she's, she's got addiction to sugar and always has. So you wonder, don't you?
0: Well, I'm super partial to a cigarette. More a these days, but, like, I see them, I'm just like, fuck me, that yeah. looks good. And I wish I didn't because they go yeah. against everything, other aspect of my life, but blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so you got to talk here.
1: Yeah, and you and then we had. Um, I didn't know what to do with myself because obviously I didn't have a job, and I, and I'd always loved cooking. I, like I'd cooked from when I was about eight. I had um, Sue's Diner, Dad used to call it, and I would write out menus on Saturday and Sunday mornings. I'd write out menus for the family and take it into their bedrooms. So it'd be like, you know, eggs done two ways or one way. And um, fruit salad, which would be an apple, and uh, tea and coffee. And Mum said the first time she ordered tea, Dad ordered coffee. So I put coffee and tea in the teapot and filled it up with hot water and poured them <laughs> poured them that. Perfect. <laughs> that was that was Sue's diner. So <laughs> I was, you know, I always loved cooking. I guess. So when when I moved in with Gary, we didn't know what to do with ourselves. He was um, still being a he had a tractor. He was a post-hole driver back then, putting fences in in farms and stuff. That's what he did. And he worked at the golf club behind the bar. Um, and I said, why don't we do a cafe? And so we bought that funny little cafe in um, the arcade in Gilbert Street called Brownies because both our surnames were Brown. Well, I have a knee on mine. He didn't. So we had brownies, we had that for two and a half years and that was just the funnest place ever. It was just a little cafe but, you know, 25 sitting down from the camping area every Saturday night with just so much hilarious stuff going on, you know, because there were no rules or regulations and we are in an arcade so there were no neighbours and a lot of dope smoking, a lot of standing on tables, a lot of flesh, a lot of just insane fun you know and that was um before you know no one ever touched us or told us or cops came or because we were always open way after hours and um so the
0: arcade that sort of runs back so Gray the mccartney
1: Car- Gray mccartney's arcade
0: it's the one that's Net- like the-
1: um alfio's not Elfio's. Oh,
0: down next to McCartney's. I yeah. know oh, that arcade. That arcade, because there's the other one up the road a little bit.
1: Yeah, so that arcade. So yeah. I, it used, to, yeah, Norm, Norm um, Brown's
0: runs into IGA. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, there. So um, everyone loved that place. It was like the best kept secret in town, you know. And the food was really good. But um, we had that for about two and a half years, and then we bought Michello's. Up On the highway, did you ever come to Michello's? No, so next to Rip Curl, there's that three shops yeah. it's an ice creamery and then two other shops. I think it's a spooners
0: pizza, there for a
1: bit? yeah, where Spooners was. We yeah. were,
0: yeah,
1: so we bought that off Norm Shrover and we were thrown out of there because we couldn't pay the rent. He changed the locks on us. There's some stories of Michello's that are just would blow your mind what went did, on there. Did
0: Johnny Smith work there sometime for you?
1: Johnny Smith worked, worked <laughs> for us at The Rock.
0: I thought he might have been at school, done some work for you at that Marcello's. No?
1: Don't think so. Okay, we had yeah. Carl, Carl Waddell. Oh, hey, Carl. Carl worked for us. Yeah. OCD Carl. Carl, there's a pizza. He'd go, hold on, because he had three more knives and forks to wrap. Like there was a pile this high, but he had three more and he couldn't deliver the pizza until the three. Talk about OCD. He was such a funny guy. I love Carl. I, we, had, we just have this amazing friendship, Carl and I, still.
0: He's such a good musician, I didn't I know I know,
1: he's an amazing musician. He used to sit at Bird Rock and play um, and sing, sing um, beautifully, beautifully, and just, like, do acoustic sets, and we'd all just sit around and listen to him like Jackson, He did a lot of Jackson Brown songs, and he was really good. Yeah, I don't think he doesn't anymore.
0: What are those two Jackson Brown songs that run into each other? It's, and they should be like one song. Do you know that? No. I'll bring them. I'll have to play them for you later. Yeah, it's I would
1: know. It'd be awesome.
0: Um, yeah. No. Okay. So, Macchello, I didn't know. So we
1: had Macchello. That was that was a great local hangout. We had um, really good food. I I did Greek food there. So we had these huge Greek platters.
0: We just winging it.
1: Yeah, all, all the food I ever did just came out of my head. It's just what I thought was what I wanted to eat, I fed other people. You know, I would never give anyone any food that I didn't love to eat myself because I love food. Yeah. I Torian love food.
0: Because the food at Burrock was awesome.
1: Yeah, well, that was just me, me, all me, really. Obviously, I'd look at a lot of menus and do a lot of research. You know, we went wherever we'd go. I'd write stuff down. But... Um, but Michellos, we had these Greek platters and we'd have, um, we had a big barbecue. So we'd have barbecued, um, sardines and souvlaki and calamari and, um, Greek breads, garlic breads, big Greek salads, but these huge platters, you know, meatballs, Greek meatballs, everything. And they would be like for four, feed four people, um, and Proper. the food was just sensational. And then we had pizzas, the best pizzas in town, which we took to The Rock. But that was a really popular place. Like all the surf crew used to come there. Kelly Slater and all the boys at Easter would all come there. We'd have tables full of all that crew. I remember once, um, I think it was Oki. Gary said, they want to talk to you. and Because I would wear, it was an open kitchen, so I would wear, you know, really nice clothes and stilettos and clearly no hair net because, you know, everyone could look at me. (laughs) So I would dress up to cook, you know, and it was just when I think about it, I'd be sweating, you know. um, But one day this, Gary said that, you know, it was Brian Singer and all these hot surfers and they said they want to talk to you and I think it was Mark Opoluko had this fork and there was this great big clump of hair on it From them, I gave them all minestrone soup, homemade minestrone soup, and obviously I don't wear a hairnet. But I don't, still to this day, don't know how there was this huge clump of my hair being held up in front of me and everyone looking at me like this, (laughs) and I nearly fucking died. And all I could think of to say was, "Well, it could have been worse. It could have been my pubic hair." And they'd shut them all up. Oh, they would have loved it. Yeah, but we only had a really little bar, but um, we would cram so many people into that bar. It was part of the restaurant, the bar. Um, And, you know, things like 3 o'clock in the morning, we get a phone call from a cops once we're in bed asleep, and they said, you've locked someone in the dunny at Michello's. (laughs) (laughs) It was Tampa. She'd passed out and we'd locked up and gone home and she she was still there and she came to and, and everything's black and she was locked in so we had to go up at 3am let her out. Oh but um, we had some crazy times there. That was a really popular place. Um, and then we, yeah, we got locked out of there. So Freddie and... Then we both went to work at The Rock for Freddie and Trevor. And they... Um, we sold them the pizza oven, so then when we went, when we bought it, we had our pizza oven there. So the the good pizzas kept going, you know. And they were they were from Norm Schrober, who bought, sold us Michello's, um, had the recipe from Topolino's in Fitzroy Street mm. for the pizzas. And that's that's. There's still still. I don't know if they're still doing pizzas. They're not actually, but right through that whole time at the Rock, they were. Based on Topolinos, that's why they were so good, because they had all the sauces that they used to use, and and then we added
0: Topolinos was huge.
1: Yeah, well, it was their their recipe basically, and then I did the you know the um, Torque analyzer that we sold a million of, and the Acropolis, the Greek pizza, and the smoked salmon and avocado, and um, Red Onion and, you know, Gourmet. Oh, that was so good. went off. They went off. They loved them. And, um, you know, we'd serve, we'd send pizzas home to people with six-pack of beer and a couple of Ekkies, you know, (laughs) because I remember I was in um, Byron Bay. I think I've told you this, I don't know. After we sold The Rock, I was in Byron Bay at the Backpackers dancing with Putu from Heartbreak High. Do you remember the actor? He's a mate... He's a oh, does he have some scarring? Yeah, yeah. Blonde, blonde surfy dude. Uh,
0: does he have... Oh, no, I'm thinking someone else then.
1: He was, he was the lead actor in Heartbreak High, but that was years ago. And my friend Louise, my goddaughter, lives in Byron Bay with him. And Anyway, he and I were on Eckies and we were dancing on the tables at the Byron Bay Backpackers. And I said, I'm really excited that I'm dancing with a movie star, a famous movie star. And he said, well i just met him, right? And he said, well, I'm not as famous as you and Gary Brown. And I said, how do you know me? And he said, oh, Kelly Slater's a good mate of mine. He still talks about this funny little bar in Janjuk where you could buy Eckies on (laughs) FPOS. Brownie. (laughs) And we had the drug room there that the cops never went into. Years later, they said too much paperwork because they knew that there was every drug under the sun in that little back room. The Cops never went in. They came in so often, but they never went near that room. They always said, nah, too much paperwork.
0: Well, I just... <coughs> I, I, I'd never had somewhere that would let me have a tab, and I think my tab was always around 400, and Brownie would always be like, do you reckon you might be able to just knock a bit off the top of that before we get going tonight? <laughs> and,
1: Brownie was so cool, wasn't he? Oh, my God. Brownie would stand there with his hands behind his back and he'd rock on his heels and he'd have his cosmopolitan, you know, with five pieces of lime in it, the vodka and the cranberry and five pieces of lime always. And he'd stand there with his hands behind his back and he'd rock on his heels with his head back and he'd just check out what was going on. He had that stance, the Brownie stance, Papa Bling Bling. I
0: thought he was a, a farmer.
1: Yeah, he was. Had a
0: full farmer demeanour.
1: Oh, yeah, well, his family are all farmers and he came from that background and he farmed, well, he drove a tractor and sort of, you yeah, know, yeah. Did, he stayed in that in that scene um, where he did post-hole, post-hole driving, you know, fencing and stuff.
0: He must have told me some story about it one night and in my head I was just like, oh, yeah, fuck
1: it. Yeah, he's... <laughs> Parents, are, well, his sister's still there on a big farm in Gundawindi. They've had that for about 40 years.
0: Gundawindi, Gundawindi yeah. pork.
1: That's where you his know family the John are from. Song? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, there, yeah, his parents are dead, but Gail, his sister's still on the farm. So, we spent a lot of time up there in Gundawindi, herding in the sheep. And
0: Where is Gundawindi?
1: Um, over the New South Wales border in Queensland.
0: Oh, wow. Right up there.
1: Yeah. Right up there. But yeah, he's got a lot of history with farms. But um he yeah, he um he was so funny, wasn't he? He just had this character that was quite unique and he never really knew what was going on in his head. He hid it really well. But if people would give him the shits at the bar, he'd just pick up the the post so, Post-mix gun. Post-mix gun and just drenched people <laughs> yeah, with soda right. water.
0: Oh, I remember even getting <laughs> one and there crazy people with it. Oh my God.
1: Yeah. But then it got a bit heavy when the, when you know, when the drugs, when the, I think it was fun in the beginning, you know, like.
0: It was jo- And Jojo was working there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Jojo worked with me for a couple of years. Uh, I How went did to you s- know Jojo? She... She was a friend, I don't know, she just sort of popped up in the town. She was a friend of that, Liz and Damien.
0: That's right, I was speaking about Liz and Damien the other day. Oh, that
1: they they was another unique couple.
0: Because um, they used
1: some... to eat, live on Eckies, they were mad. And he used
0: to. Well, Leanne lived underneath. It with them.
1: Oh, that's right. Oh, God. Now we're going back. Leanne, you went out with
0: Leanne.
1: (laughs) I was talking about that recently with Emily.
0: But she lived underneath, you know, at Liz and Damien's house.
1: Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's
0: right. Horror. I'm pausing this.
1: And um, yeah, I caught up with Jojo and. Every time she sees me, she just starts laughing about our time in the kitchen at the rock. Like, she just can't stop laughing. We used to just, like, I had um, garfish one night on the menu and she would stand there serving up and I would be here. You know, it was a tiny kitchen. And I'd put these two garfish on her shoulder and I'd go, I'd start pretending they were talking to her instead of putting them on the plate. They'd be on her shoulder and she'd go. Well, it just the laughter was... You know, tears streaming while well, we've got 120 meals to put out. We just have to stop and just regroup, you know. Drinking, I drank the whole time in that kitchen, you know, I, in a coffee cup. And I thought I was tricking everyone And for, for ages. And we had, you know, like six staff in that kitchen. And I'm thinking they're all, they're all thinking I'm drinking coffee, you know. And one night um, we finished... Service and I said to Frank, he was our dishy for a long time. Oh I said, God. okay. And
0: talking of characters, just another all-time Kramer.
1: And he was <laughs> he was dealing drugs out of Bird Rock, Brownie, and he nearly had a punch up because Brownie's going, you can't deal drugs out of my cafe because I am.
0: It's my job. <laughs>
1: That's my job. Um, I remember I cleaned out the storeroom one time, and there were just all this, all these herbs sitting in bags that have been there since Freddie and Trevor and I just had this huge cleanup. And Gary came into the kitchen one day and he went, What did you do with the oregano? And I went, I threw it No. Yeah, he had this huge bag of marijuana inside the oregano bag and I'd thrown it all out and we looked out and Gary's legs are hanging out of this dumpster. (laughs) All you can see were his legs. Determined to fire the mole. Big bag of, big bag (sighs) of Um, but this after after just this, you know, when I think about it, I would start drinking at twelve and prepping, and I would then probably do drink through service and then drink at the bar till you know two in the morning every single day, and still manage to, you know, put these magnificent meals on plates. I, to this day, I don't know how I ever did it. I just must have been such a good drinker. I don't know. But I thought I was tricking people. One night I said to Frank, after big, heavy, heavy service, go and get us all a drink, Frank. And he said, okay, do you want yours in a glass or do you want it in your cup, your wine, you know? (laughs) And how we trick ourselves. I said, how? What do you mean? (laughs) Like we didn't know you drink wine out of a coffee cup. (gasps) That's how your head works. Um, But... It just when I think about, like, we never made a bloody cent in that place. When you know we'd have the bar, the bar would move to the kitchen, and that party would go on. And then the bar, the kitchen party from the bar would go into our flat because we were living next door then. And that would go till to, to dawn. And and I, well, Gary and I never charge anyone for drinks after the bar times, so people just go and help themselves.
0: The best lock-ins. <laughs> the best lock-ins. Shh, gotta be quiet for a second. We we'll drop the blinds. <laughs>
1: And then the Coke would come out in the kitchen and there'd just be lines of Coke everywhere. So much fun, you know, really. Uh, but I don't know how we got through that alive to tell the tale, really. Um, just insane. And, you know... The things that would go on, like I'd walk in down to those downstairs toilets twice and I found people fornicating <laughs> down there. I reckon a couple of those kids were born from, from our toilets. And the couples that met at Bird Rock that are still together, like yeah. Amanda and Adam.
0: Was it a um, slice of time that was sort of a bit of an institution? Yeah, like, it, was it was a huge like...
1: institution. Yeah. We had, you know, Gary. It Gar- was like cheers. Gary Ablett the Senior used to come in a lot and with his mates. And because um, he was Gary Ablett, he didn't pay, you know, and he had his mates were all sort of well known footballers as well, not that I was into football. So I, you know, when the tab got up to 300 one night, and Gary wouldn't ever even do the padding of the, the you know, looking for the wallet padding. But the other three guys that he was with would always go, oh, like this, like we haven't got any money. So there'd be no money changing hands after a whole night of the four of them drinking, you know. And the, the tab got up to about 400 at one point. Um, and um, I said to Gary, I was pissed, of course, and I said, hey, listen, you've got to pay your tab. No one's paying the tab here. And I said, and, and you know, when you think about it, you're nothing but a has been. And he looked at me and he said, well, he laughed his head off and he went, well, better to be a has-been than a never was. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I went, mean, to Gazza. So when he left that time, he left. I found his wallet in the toilets and there was a $5 note in his licence in this funny little wallet. And I rang him up and I said, I've got your wallet here. And he came in and um, he put his arms around me and gave me this huge hug like I've never had in my life. It was like I was just the muscles, the body. Huge and he just held me really tight and he said I'm sorry for calling you and never was and I said I'm sorry for calling you a been. and we laughed <laughs> i gave him his wallet and then when he in, and then when he found god you know cuz he was god and then he found god after that girl died and i said um, so god how does it feel to find god god you know and at that stage he wasn't he was really changed cuz he he was still drinking but he was um he went quite mad, like, you know, crazy, and nothing was funny anymore. He was really serious, and and then he and then I think he became a monk. A I think monk? I think he's become a monk or something now. <laughs> but uh, still drinking? No, no, no. He's been sober for years. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think uh, after all that shit went down. But we had some pretty famous people in that place, over the years. Not to mention, you know... car um, through the window. Oh, the, yeah, the car through the window. Yeah, that was a good one. Standing there, at, what was it? And the thing was, that table next to the bar had just left when the that happened. table. No, the one neck in between the surfboard table and the bar. Oh, yeah, there was a table yeah. full of people that had just left five minutes before it happened. Or they'd all be dead, I reckon, because that's the, the car came. But yeah, it was one o'clock in the morning, Gary and I were cleaning up the bar and we'd thrown Sean out um after hours very drunk very stoned very angry you know how he got Mm. the schizophrenia so we'd said you got to go you know he was like a son to us Sean you know you got to go Sean you you know you just need to stop and um so it was probably an hour later and I saw the headlights coming towards us and I just looked at Gary and I sort of half-jokingly said, this will be Sean. He said, don't be ridiculous. Next thing, in came the car, straight through the front window, up to the bar. It's like, you know, right through the whole building. Car touching the bar. So um, Sean, Gary just thought straight away and he put his hand in the car and Sean was just sort of slumped, unhurt, and got the keys out because later on what Sean told us he was going to do was back out and then go around and go through the, back out and come back through the other window. So he did the whole building. Didn't, he wasn't happy. Had with it plan planned. Yeah, he had it planned apparently. So there's the car in the building, us with our jaws just dropped and Sean's got out of his car and he sat on the bonnet and he said, get me a beer and... Light my cigarettes, is. and I said, "Yes, sir." <laughs> I wasn't going to argue with him at that point. He was gone, absolutely gone. So I gave him a beer, lit his cigarette while Gary rang the cops, and um, um, he, the cops came and and uh, put him in the divvy wagon, and, and you know, filling out all the paperwork, and and the, the cops were just looking around going (laughs) they just couldn't believe it they just couldn't believe what was going on Um, and I said can I go and see him because I love Sean I adored Sean Um, can I go and see him and um, they said why would you want to go and see him he's just wrecked your fucking livelihood he's wrecked your building I said because I love him he's like a son to me so I went out in the divvy wagon and he was sound asleep so I just sort of patted his leg and told him I loved him (laughs) he was out cold um, and they took him off to jail, obviously, spent the night in jail. We um, had to stay there all night while we got the glass fixer to come in because it was a Friday night. We had to open on the Saturday. We had the glass fixer come in, and people were just coming from everywhere, and we were all just there till dawn, and the glass got fixed and cleaned up, and um, the Geelong Addy rang and said "said we want the story, and I said, no. Nothing's happened here, and and Gary's going. You might as well give them the story because they're going to get it anyway. And so, the next day on the Geelong Addy, I don't know how they knew this, but there was a car cartoon on the in the Geelong Addy of this woman standing there with big hair like mine was then, and hands on hips with an apron on, looking at this window that was all smashed, great big hole in the window. And a car coming through the window, and she says to him, "Sorry, sir, we don't do drive-through." This caricature. So it was like they knew me, they'd seen me, and yet they hadn't because it looked like me. Sorry, sir, we don't do drive-through. And your humour. Yeah, and uh, yeah. So so um, poor old Brooko's parents came round and paid for all the damage. Rod and Andrea, um, and he went off to jail and was banned for three months from Bird Rock.
0: Just three months, that's yeah. great. Yeah,
1: 3 months <laughs> banned. a cooling-off
0: period. 3
1: months banned, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then when he came back after three months, he rang the day the three months was up and said, can I come back? And I said, of course you can. Um, you just, you've got to redeem yourself, though, Sean, you know. Just, so he came back and he got so drunk he vomited on our brand-new star carpet in the bar that I'd got from the, Geelong Picture Theatre, offcuts. this, you remember that cool, I remember he it, vomited, yeah. he got so drunk he vomited, this is after he was banned for three months, this is him redeeming himself, anyway, he got a, I gave him a bucket of hot water, hot soapy water and he scrubbed that floor, that carpet, so much to get rid of the vomit that we had a great big white splotch there that never went away, <laughs> totally different colour from the rock. <laughs> From the he was so embarrassed. He just kept scrubbing. He <laughs> scrubbed the colour out of the carpet. So that was him redeeming himself. Um, but you know, I, I think we've talked about you know when he lived in that house over the road that we ended up living in. Gary and I lived in after he and his mates lived there in that court opposite Pabs. Can't think of the name of the street. He had a noose hanging in his in the garage. And he showed me at one time we were there for a party, and he came and showed me the noose, and you know, and I had this big thing, talk to him about why do you, you know, obviously he had it in his head because of the schizophrenia, that um, he wanted to kill himself, I think, from from a a long, long, long time ago, which eventually did. But he said he used to say the voices. He's just got voices. The voices told him to drive through the window, bird rock. They were the voices. So that's what his head was doing, which is schizophrenia, isn't it? Mm. And uh, when he showed you the nurse, what
0: did he say? What did you say? He
1: was just laughing, going, you know, I'm ready. This is, this is here and I'm ready for, for when I want to do it, you know, which was just so sad. I mean, you knew he was going to do it. I did. I always knew he was going to do that. There was, he just said, I can't stand the voices. I mean, you know, when you can't stand it anymore, what do you do? You top yourself. So they'll stop. Um, but yeah, really sad because such a beautiful, clever, talented gun surfer, you know, lovely boy, really. He just had this shocking disease, schizophrenia. Oh, it's such a fun and he fight. couldn't drink or, and he drank, you know, when he knew he shouldn't because of, of what it did to him. Um, yeah, and then I ran into him a couple of years later up in Queensland at the Snapper Rocks comp, and he was on, Um, his meds and he was all bloated from the meds but he was fine, he had one pot of beer and he was laughing and seemed really cool, seemed really good, you know, he said the meds are doing really well and kept (laughs) apologising I never once you know, I never once reacted as in how dare you do that to us, it was just I was just sad for him you know and he always said it was, wasn't was personal. It was just the voices. It was never a personal attack. But that was talked about for a long time. One of the biggest things that ever oh happened in Janjuck for a long Sorry. time.
0: I wasn't there that night, but I remember driving up to the next morning to see the end.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had people, lots of people yeah, came yeah. to look. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, yeah, and then the... Once the drugs, once the Ekkies hit Bird Rock, I remember um, I wasn't quite sure about it. I was, Obviously, I was a lot older, but I wasn't quite sure about the Ekkies. And, and the first ones we had were apples. Did you have apples?
0: The, um, <sighs> green Mitzies, white Mitzies. Uh...
1: Well, the first ones that came to the rock that we had were the apples, and they were just so fucking powerful, man. I would just pray that it would go. I would pray to God to please let it leave me, you know. <laughs> just didn't know what to do. Didn't know how to handle myself yeah. on that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Didn't like being out of myself like that. You know, booze was okay because you could sort of knew yeah. you were safe with the booze, but those things, it, I, didn't, I never felt safe.
0: No, my first two times weren't enjoyable experiences at all, but then the third time was Downstairs, Liz and Damien's at one of their parties. Oh, like their they had the parties! Dance downstairs dance area with huge speakers. I was
1: on one. I was on one at one of their parties, and it was unbelievable.
0: Yeah, it was like that. Best night, was a turning night point, you ever. Know.
1: <laughs> yeah, I like these now. Give me more. Yeah, Give
0: me more. What the fuck just happened? Yeah, that was pretty good time.
1: Juan, Juan was um, looking after me at that party. You remember Juan?
0: Yeah, yeah, totally.
1: And uh, I'd, I think was probably my first of that type. And, and he, was, he kept looking at me and he, and he would just burst out laughing and go, because oh, I'd go, "Wow, this just happened, this just happened. Yeah, and he'd yeah. look at me and he'd go, you're the perfect student. You're the perfect student. That's exactly what's supposed to happen, you know. <laughs> and he was following me around, just laughing at me. <laughs> oh, look, here she goes. I know what's happening to her now. She's at that stage, you know. Yeah, yeah. But and I remember had, it was six a.m. in the morning. Suddenly, it was just six a.m. and you're going, "What happened?" Yeah. And you're coming down, and you've and got this euphoric and... feeling of just coming down, and you know, it's it, you and feel really
0: connected talking to people. Like oh. everything's like sort of microcosm, and it's like, oh my god, you feel that? Yeah, I feel that
1: right now. Yeah. I want to. Take an ecky now. I want that feeling again. <laughs> but I remember. Um, but then the
0: anxiety that would come later be like, "Fuck!"
1: You just would lose two days, wouldn't you? You wouldn't yeah. be able to do anything after that. The Eki come completely. downs, and all our staff they just wouldn't turn up for work after their Eki weekends <laughs> or ecky nights, you know. And we'd just be having to do everything, dishing, cooking, because you know they just. They were all on Ekkies, all our kitchen staff were on Ekkies. So it's like they couldn't
0: come to work. I was so bad until it was like the start of mobile phones. And so at like 4 a.m., I'd just take it upon myself to just walk outside and call all these people and just leave voicemails or tell them how much I love them. Um, yeah,
1: it's
0: a love drug. You know, like I just, you know, Dad, I'll just rang. I just wanted to touch base and just tell you I love you. Yeah. If <laughs> so you be like, oh, yeah. what?
1: Well, what are you on? <laughs> I remember... Um, Greylo, yeah. he's a funny man. He and his mates decided that it was a better hit if you stuck the ecky up your bum. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: And I looked it. across to the park outside our windows this night, and there's four bare bums all bent over, sticking eckies up them. Shut just, up! Just in the little reserve, I don't know why they couldn't do it inside. It was like a ritual. They're all sticking eckies up their bum <laughs> because they got a better hit. Did you know that? Yeah, I have. It heard works heard. faster just, or it's something. Called,
0: like, it's called shelving
1: shelving <laughs> but that was just par for the course you know things like that would happen at the rock and you just go oh, yeah whatever Like another, uh, Gary Valentine was sitting on the chair on the table another time and went straight through the plate glass window and he was lying on the chair unhurt again lying on the chair on his back outside the window and um, through the front same window as Sean went but oh, the other my window God, that's
0: a huge piece of
1: glass yeah but it just shattered cleanly and he was lying on the ground and he dropped his drink and hes he was so drunk, he's yelling through the hole in the in the glass, Suze, can you get me a beer? So I've walked through, we've got, there was a, par, a nurse in the bar so she was tending to him as I'm walking through the hole, giving him the beer while he's lying on the footpath because he dropped his beer. You know, to me I'm thinking, oh, the poor man hasn't got a beer, you know. he was reciting poetry and he's just gone like this and the whole chair's gone backwards but things like that happened all the time you know and you just think like when there was a fight in the bar that those local homegrown thugs um brothers i'll think of their name and they started fighting lukey slow lukey
0: oh lukey um slow lukey yeah, Lu- Lu- Lukey. Um... It ended up getting
1: tats all over yeah, his body. Yeah,
0: yeah. And he's rode a motorbike for a while. Lukey
1: Yeah, Lukey. Slow Lukey we yeah, called him.
0: Yeah. Anyway, I remember Lukey well.
1: And they were picking on him and this fight started and Gary got in the melee and um what are these boys? Was it Luke Egan? Luke Egan, yeah. These boys they're they're um you know, every town has the homegrown brother thugs. Um can't think of their names anyway one of them's elbowed there's a few in this melee you know that's getting bigger blokes are all joining in and gary got elbowed in the head from this guy and knocked him out briefly so brownie's on the ground and this fight's going on on top of him so i went to get oh god i can't think of their names i went to grab him just to throw him out he was a big guy and i thought this is stupid oh of course i was pissed and on edgey i think and i went to grab him and he turned around and scratched my face right down both Ooh. sides what bloke scratches a girl's face why wouldn't he just do something like i don't know anyway i'm i'm oblivious to this and i'm still trying to get him out and kate, kate little blonde kate who was working for us came over with a cloth and she's dabbing my face and she's going so you got blood all running down your face (laughs) and I went what you know no idea what was going on I'm saying I'm trying to get him out Kate can we just leave the wiping of the blood for a minute (laughs) anyway we got him out and uh things calmed down and he he came back the next day and he said I'm gonna kill all of you I've got a gun I'm gonna kill yous yeah y'all here like he was a real hillbilly these boys you'll probably know them when I think of them so he stalked us for a while, and it got a bit scary because I thought he probably does have a gun. Anyway, he calmed down. He didn't kill us. Oh. <laughs> but it was just Gary sort of come to, and then all this fight's all happening around him. <laughs> He's going, what's going on? I can see stars. and uh, What were their names?
0: Anyway. I really don't know. I can't think of two brother henchmen.
1: They are henchmen. They're, they were real hillbillies. Bogan Hillbillies. But yeah, that was just the stuff that went on, you know? Yeah, like yeah, the yeah. surfboard table, the dancing on the surfboard table. And I th- used to think those legs were just going to snap. There'd be 20 people dancing, and the table would be rocking. And there's the glass wall, you know? And I think someone's just going to die here one day. Someone's going to get catapa- catapa- decapitated kid, get- from that glass. <laughs> You know, you could just see everyone falling, but no one seemed to mind. So, you know? at what
0: point did you put security in there? Because they came along at some point.
1: Yeah, we had oh, we had to because of Colin Moynes over the road who hassled us, who took us. To, we had to go to court a lot of times for, you know, the idiot that's house still isn't built by the way, that um had put a camera in his home and slept there. It's not where he lived. He lived down the road with his mum, but he put a camera in the house opposite, so he could film Bird Rock. And we go to court and there's a film of me standing on the bar at 2.25, dancing on the bar, people still coming in from PABs at 2.20 to get their coats because they went to PABs for five minutes but stayed there for two hours so I came back to get their coats. Doors door still opening and shutting. Brownie rolling joint, this film of him rolling a joint, me on the bar and all this going on, and they've got f- so much footage of this because he filmed us for 20, 24-7, um, but the judge kept saying this is inadmissible, video is inadmissible evidence in court, but we were warned over and over again and fined so many times. We were fined so many times because of this prick. So um, And you put blinds in because I remember
0: you just yeah, dropped the
1: blinds. Yeah, we put blinds in. Um, but after all that, but one night Frank Frank Curran and I said, we. Frank said, we're going to get him. So we, three o'clock in the morning, we put garbage bags on us and gloves, rubber gloves, and we got black spray paint. And we went over to his house and we spray-painted pervert in like six-foot letters across his fence and inside his house walls because it was all open, half-finished building. Spray-painted pervert in black paint all over his walls, but... As we were walking out of Bird Rock, Pammy, the cab driver, why would she be there at 2 or whatever it was in the morning, said to us, what are you guys doing? And we went, oh, oh, we're going to a fancy dress because we had black plastic bags <laughs> and gloves on. <laughs> anyway, um, we then reported him as uh, one of our girls' staff had been followed home by him and he was a pervert and he should, something should be done about him. Like Colin Moynes had long red hair, wore a cap over his face. He's more, he's as likely to be a rapist as the Dalai Lama, you know. Um, and the cops just laughed at us and said, You've got to stop. And I, you know, we'd, could, this was a big thing. He was destroying our livelihood, Colin Moynes, more so than bloody Sean Brooks did. And it went on for months and months and months, well, years. Well, yeah, Years it went
0: on. I remember every like
1: in and out of court, shut up, shut up, in and out of court with him and finds. Um, another time we put a dead fish under his because he loved his utes, he had brand new utes. Oh, and Blanclaire and I snuck up to his mum's house one night with a big carving knife to slash his four brand new tyres on his brand new ute, loved his utes. And we put, it was 2 in the morning or something, one thirty in the morning, I put a, um, the knife through one tyre and the noise <laughs> was, yeah, you know, it's pitch black and so quiet in Jan Juk and it's 1.30 in the morning and the noise of this tyre blowing was unbelievable. Claire and I have just jumped and run like, forget the other three tyres. <laughs> um, next morning I woke up and I went, I can't believe we did that. Claire and she went, You left your thongs outside Moyne's house, and we're going, What what if they do DNA on thongs? You know, like he knew exactly who it was. Another time we put a big dead fish in summer under his bonnet, hid it under the motor so that the stench after a few days just would have been excruciating. He also knew that was us. Like he knew what was going warfare. on. Warfare. It was just warfare. It went on and on. But, you know, he painted his fence back white and you know, he just kept filming us. But after that, you know, we had to have all these things change. Then that's not long after that we got out of there. We had to have security. We had to close at eleven. Um, yeah, we, I think they made us close at eleven after that. And that's when we lost. It was wasn't fun anymore, really. <laughs> so you know, like Des, Des, the local copper. Spent so much of his time in Bird Rock, you know, and he was a good mate of Gary's. Gary used to surf with him, um, and uh, he'd—I remember one night he came in, and it was after hours, and the place was still full, and the place was full of s- joint smoke. Des would walk in, and he'd just look at me like this, and shake his head, and he'd have the fine in his hand, you know, and I'd say, Des, is that a gun in your pocket, or are you just happy to see me, honey? And he'd just laugh and go, yeah, another fine, $200 fine every time. You know, we were relentless. We, were, <laughs> we weren't giving in. It was, um, yeah, crazy, really crazy times when you think about it.
0: Ah, uh, all the time.
1: And the cops are still talking about it, you know, like years later when they said, we will never go near your drug room. Actually, yeah, they remember, knew.
0: I remember being in a lock-in. I remember a lock-in one night. Oh, lots of them. But the one night I remember, we were having there was a fireplace in the corner. I think there was
1: yeah, canara. Canara. Yeah. We
0: were sitting by the canara, and Princess died. Just died, and you were really upset. Oh, God. And I just, I was like. I was quite detached from Princess Di yeah. for some reason.
1: <laughs> I had a scrapbook on her.
0: That you were like. I was in I love could with her. See them. how much it had affected you, and I was oh. like, I was really kind of blown away and felt. Badly yeah. for you. But. I
1: was just obsessed with Lady Di. I thought she was an angel. I had a scrapbook. I've still got a scrapbook. I've got that many books on my um, bookcase at home of Lady Di. They take up that much of the bookcase, and I've read everything about her.
0: <laughs> was she killed?
1: Yep. yep. She was killed, I reckon. Absolutely. What were they going to do with her? You know?
0: So um, tell I me.
1: I shouldn't.
0: Am I, I allowed to ask you, because I don't <clears throat> know. What happened to Brownie?
1: Well, he um, went to Columbia where the cocaine is pure after he got out of jail. You know, he only did five months jail. Went to four different jails when they got him. That's you know, they way. they got him in his... They got him... When we were in the flat, we we were all saying to him, there's cops in the street opposite watching our flat. And they were there every day. So we knew it was we were being watched. And Brownie was well, off... He was on ice at that point. He went from Eckie's... When I got with Robbie, who was his best mate, he said he was waking up in the morning... Um, and taking two eckies for breakfast, or four eckies for breakfast. That's what Gary was doing in the end. That's when he'd gone back to Follett Street and had the $10,000 um, plantation, marijuana plantation set up in our house, which I helped him set up. And that's when we moved to the flat so we could use the house to do that. And he was sleeping in a bedroom there and um, watching over the plants. And And, you know, he... We were all in the flat still, so he was sleeping there. And he was doing that for Brecky. He was, you know, getting up and just taking ekkies. So that was his frame of mind when he got busted. And he um, kept saying, no, they're not watching me. They don't want little guys like me. They want the big dudes, you know. This is when he was hanging out with Lionel Rose and all those heavy dudes, in Geelong. He was going and hanging out with Lionel Rose, you know, who, who was doing a lot of heroin and a lot of dealing. He's dead now too, the boxer. So they were his mates, you know, he was hanging with some really heavy dudes and, and we were being watched and we, his kids and I were just freaking out. We just knew something was going to happen. And he kept saying, no, 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 they don't want me, you know, total denial. And then he sold some eckies to a friend of James's who gave one to his 14-year-old sister who had a really bad reaction and told her dad where the Ekkie had come from. I mean, Brownie would never deal to underage kids, but one of the kids gave it to his sister. Mm. So the cops... So the father dobbed him into the cops just at the same time we were being watched. So that was that. They came and got him... Uh, he was parked at the, the Rock car park... And the cops landed on him and got him with his in his car with scales and speed ecstasy, marijuana and a big wad of notes, so they arrested him and then followed him down to the house, unbeknownst to him off his head. They were following him, drives down to the house, and they get they follow him and get the 47 bagged up ounces of marijuana in his cupboard the 16 full grown female plants, our whole house was converted into this hydro setup. It was really well done you know the full on black plastic walls, the heaters, the whole thing, they got all that after they've got him with what he had in his car, they've got all that uh, also in the house was more cash, more drugs more scales, the whole thing so I was working at Deakin University as a trolley dolly at this stage and I drove past the house thinking something was up and there's Gary handcuffed outside our house and it looked like a fucking scene from Miami Vice. Uh, These coppers were everywhere. They were out-of-town coppers. We didn't know any of them and they were um, everywhere and they ripped through the whole house, ripped all the plants out. Gary was sitting there handcuffed with this... Big red face, sort of a half grin on his face, I don't know. And I looked at him and, and I and he went, Guess I've fucked up. Guess I fucked up, eh? It was my birthday, 14th of May. And I went, guess you have. And the cops said, came up to me and he said, and and he said, um, do you know, do you know about this? Did you know about this? And I said, You you gonna handcuff me? And he went. Well, that depends. And I said, can you handcuff me? (laughs) I was in shock, I think. I've always wanted to be handcuffed. (laughs) Cute copper too, really cute. Um, And he he said, did you know about this? And I said, yes, I did. I helped him set it up. Sorry. I said, Billy, stop it. I wasn't going to lie. You know, and I felt so sorry for Brownie. I said, yes, I did. I helped him set this up. He said, okay, well, you can now get in your car with these two young plainclothes coppers who were just gorgeous, gorgeous boys, young boys, Starsky and Hutch, I called them straight away. I went, mean, I'll get in the car with Starsky, Starsky and Hutch, and they said, well, we've got to get in your car, because he wanted them to come up to the flat, see, search the flat for drugs. <coughs> Excuse me, my voice is going. So we get in my car, and um, my registration's expired <laughs> Starsky looks at the sticker and says, well, "We'll ignore that. So we go up to my flat and, you know, then you have to go into every room. I have to sit while they go into every room. And I'm saying, can I have a gin and tonic? And they're going, no, no, you can't have a gin and tonic. You, you might have to go to jail, you know, with Gary. So just keep, keep cool for a while while they search the flat. You know, that was three levels. Mm. So it took a long time. They found some really old marijuana in a case of mine that I must have had from Morocco in 1976. Seriously, there was old marijuana, and he and he goes, old marijuana on the report, bag of old marijuana. Make sure it's old, it's not current. Um, and then Gary rang from, well, rang one of the cops there, Starsky, and head cop rang and said Sue's been, Gary's exonerated Sue from all charges, which was nice of him. He was in Geelong lockup, up um, and that he stayed in Geelong lockup for two weeks. It's unheard of. It's supposed to be a temporary overnight, and then they go to trial or somewhere else. Yeah, why? They kept him in there for two weeks, and all he had in there, I took him in. The next day was my birthday, sorry. So I went in, and he, he looked through the bars. It was like in the movies. He looked through the bars. There was no phone, though, and said... Um, I guess it's pointless, me wishing you a happy birthday. (laughs) You know, he's in jail. It's all happened. It's fucking over. Um, Anyway, I just felt so sad for him because he was coming down, you know. Like he was cold turkeying, detoxing severely because he'd been doing a hell of a lot more than anyone knew. So I just took him in books and um, he stayed in there. I think it was over. It was nearly two weeks they kept him in there. I'm pretty sure it was a bloody long time. No one could do anything to get him out. We had, we had lawyers. We had a good local lawyer trying to get him out. And then he went to um, Port Phillip, and then he went to um, Map, the Map Melbourne Assessment Prison, and then to castlemaine So he went to four different prisons. And it was only, he only got five months. Like in America, he would have got five years. They couldn't believe the whole judicial system with Gary was, I don't know, totally fucked up. Every time he'd get a new judge, the judge would look at him and look at the f- file and go, what, what are we What are we doing? He'd look around and go, what are we doing with this man? You know, it was all really weird. Remember, Jekyll and I and Robbie McIver went to one court case from the map that was on video, in Geelong Court. We were in Geelong Court. He was in Melbourne video conference. And the, this is at, towards the end of the sentence. And the cops said, okay, because Gary and Robbie and I used to watch Deal or No Deal every night. It was our favourite show. <laughs> and the cop says, okay, we're going to do this, 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 and this. So what that means is you're going to have to spend another month in the map or you pay whatever, whatever. So what's the deal? And Gary's looked at all of us and gone, what do you reckon guys, deal or no deal? And we're all gone, deal. <laughs> so he um, went to the map for another month, but it was, uh, no, then he went to Castlemate. sorry, they sent him to Castlemaine where he had his own room and TV and he could work in the garden. So he was happy there. And then when he got out, he started dealing again. And we're all just going, you've got to be joking. And when he flew to Columbia that day, they were getting him again. They'd worked, they'd, that was the date they were coming back for him, where he would have been thrown into jail for 10 years had they got him. Um, that oh, day he did, flew. And did he know that? No, no, no. He had no idea. And we we were told that later. So he he just decided to go to Columbia where the cocaine is pure. At this point I don't think he had any intention of coming back um, and none of us could talk him out of it. So... He was there 18 months when he died and he was doing a lot of cocaine, apparently, and he owed money and he didn't have a passport or visa or any money.
0: No passport or visa.
1: Everything had expired. Yeah. Um, This is what we were told, and we were told this by Claire's, the father of Claire Brown's two sons, who Gary was a friend of, Fabienne, the Spanish guy. He wrote a really long letter to Claire explaining what had happened. He was, um, uh, he got electrocuted basically because over in in those countries, third world countries, you know, the wires are all hanging out of the walls. I mean, you know, it's just people get electrocuted a lot. Apparently, the he got electrocuted. It went. He touched a, a ceiling that had wires that electrocuted him and went straight into his mouth. And there's an exit and a an enter and an exit when you get electrocuted, but when when it, he, it went into his head, it went straight into his many many amalgam fillings, and there was no exit, so he was alive for eight hours with the electric. You know,
0: but couldn't move.
1: No, he was in hospital. I think he lasted eight hours with being in the having the electric shock. In his system, but not killing him. But that's how he died. Because, you know, amalgam, apparently, like you don't have them, but you're too young. We've all got amalgam in our mouths from fillings. So it just went into them. But having said that, and I don't know if I should say this because I don't actually know what happened. Claire was um, at our house recently, and she and Emily had a huge night on the booze because they're sisters, basically, stepsisters, and the next day, Emily said, Claire told me how um, Gary actually died. And uh, I said, How? And she said, I can't remember. <laughs> she was too drunk to remember. So she said, It was sort of like we were told because Fabienne sent this really long letter and had it all translated into English, which Claire gave us all a copy of the three kids, the four kids, and me a copy of. That's how he died. So that's how we want to think he died. You know, there were all these rumours going around Torquay about how, you know, he was, they put a tie around his neck and he was thrown in the bath. You know how they kill people in those sort of countries, especially Tamarco, which is one of the, the biggest cocaine import city in Colombia is where he was. He was riding a bark around Colombia, actually, a push bark, going to all different countries. Um, but that's how we would like to think he died, I think. But, you know, you can imagine how he could have died, all the rumours that were going around. They don't like being owed money, those boys in Colombia, and they're all, you know, it's all to do with cocaine. But, um, yeah, I just think that's how we'll leave that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah. uh, uh, He wasn't murdered. Right. Yeah. I, uh, well, thanks for shedding some light there. Such a so sad, shocking.
1: But you know, I honestly don't think he. I don't know how he would have got home, or what he would have done if he got home. But you know, they never got his body back here, his parents, because cost ten grand to get the body back. They left him over there, and after five years, they cremated him. They just he just stays in the cemetery, in the coffin, um, which is there. This is how they do it, and then after five years, they cremated him so his ashes are still there always meant to be picked up by James always said he'd go and get his ashes and we'd scatter them at Jadjuk but it never happened so that's even sad more sad I think that no one ever did anything about getting him back be nice to have a little memorial place that we could go and say g'day
0: Oh, I think or they, to have a um,
1: service with his ashes.
0: Once this is all these l- bands are lifted, uh, it should be a mission.
1: Yeah. I think James is determined to do it. He was the one that always said he'd do it. But, yeah, shockingly sad. Shockingly sad. You know, four kids, including Emily, always said he had four kids. But um, what a character. I mean, what a unique character was Brownie. You know, <laughs> they broke the mould. I could never get him, you know. He was too too obscure and cryptic for me, Brownie. I really had trouble getting him. What what is he all about? You know, when you just mouth off and you know, people would just be really confused and insulted and you know, he just didn't care. He would just say whatever he wanted. There was no filter but, you know, he had a heart of gold. He was a really good man, and he did a lot of good stuff for a lot of people, especially at The Rock. You know, he helped a lot of people out. He was always a shoulder to cry on. He was a great listener. You know, he was a funny bugger, but weird sense of humour. Oh. <laughs> weird sense of humour. But, you know, wow, I wouldn't change a thing. I mean, you know, I would never, ever change any of that. It was all meant to be and it was all part of our journey, all of our journeys, and we all hopefully learnt from <laughs> it. <laughs> I don't know what. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's fucking hell. Yeah,
1: so, you know, that's, um, I think it was a blessing that he never came back here because he, would, he was never going to be happy He never, he was lost.
0: Couldn't scratch the edge.
1: You know, he used to do, he used to study law. He was a good surfer. He had, he was lost. He didn't know what to do with his life after he got into drugs. Drugs just fucked him. They really did. They changed his personality completely. He was a, he was a, not, not a good person to be around in the end.
0: Do you think that he could have got over?
1: No, he wouldn't have ever. You know, he was sending cocaine home from America to our postbox in Torquay after we, from Columbia that Claire and I had to go and get in the middle of the night from our postbox at the Torquay post office. Great big birthday card, pink birthday card, full of coke that we had to give... I won't mention any names, but we had to um, give to someone to pay a debt of his... You know, and he was... I shouldn't say all this. You don't you know, have to say
0: no. You don't You don't have to say anything. You don't want to. He was
1: just, well, you can cut this out, but he was.
0: Well, no, no, no. Don't say if I, I want
1: to cut it. Right. I'll just leave it.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway.
1: He was just doing weird things. Yeah. He had no conscience, 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 conscience anymore. He had no qualms about what he was doing. He was just doing really inappropriate stuff and, and not caring. You know, he lost all his morals, and and that's what the drugs did to him because they changed him totally. The last
0: time I saw him, he looked
1: different. Yeah, he was. He was nothing going on here. Just um, how he could get what he needed to get at the expense of anyone or treading on anyone to get what he needed, as addicts do, you know? And um, blaming everyone else for his miserable life. But, you know, I I would not want his kids to ever hear that stuff because I've never really spoken to them about how much um, he was psychologically abusing me and Emily for a while. I mean, (laughs) he would do things like when she was underage, probably 17, started working at Bird Rock, Emily, he would tell her to wear lower cut tops so her tits showed more. (laughs) This is his stepdaughter. Emily would go to the customers who would look at those great big, she's always had those great big boobs, you know, and she'd say, well, they're not going to get you a fucking drink, so maybe you should look at my face because <laughs> I'd always just look at her tits, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, an institution, Bird Rock, wasn't it?
0: Oh, my God. This, yeah.
1: It certainly was, and still to this day, you know, whenever I run into anyone like it, the oils you know those guys the first thing they say is thanks for the best times of our lives which is a compliment
0: but you seem pretty good today
1: yeah well i i wouldn't be if i wasn't sober i i have nightmares about what my life would be like if i'd kept going you know but i it took me to It's interesting that I've probably been going to AA and I just thought about this for 30 years on and off. Like I was going to AA, a a women for sobriety group in Geelong when I was 37. I'm 66 now. So that's how long. And then I did AA in Geelong, those those other meetings where the place would be full of smoke. You know, this is back 80s everyone would just chain smoke in the meetings and the churches in Geelong and I couldn't stand it.
0: Because you, were, even then you knew there was a...
1: Yeah, but I still put it off, stopping, yeah. till I was 63 years old, you know. I mean, it just shows you that you're in denial about being an alcoholic for so long. And then, you know, I did an eight-month stint in DY, uh, AA in Sydney. I only lasted eight months and then I had like a seven-year relapse till I stopped... Or ten year relapse. Still kept drinking. I mean the last five years I hated drinking, but I kept drinking. Hated the taste of it, hated the effect of it, nothing was working, but I had to keep drinking. You know, and I think about that, like really good wine was tasting like petrol. And I was doing back in Melbourne, I was doing, you know, two and a half bottles of red a night, isolating with wasn't drinking in in public anymore, couldn't drink in public anymore. And the stinking thinking was just set in, it was absolutely permanently set in my head. I was nasty and I was angry, and I was not a nice person. And you know and that that night with um Max, who was eight months old, he's five now, when I looked at him and thought i'm I'm by myself with him in St. Kilda, this was, and I looked at him and thought, What would happen, this is on my two and a half bottles I was on, I'd had, and I looked at him and I thought what would happen if um, anything happened to him and I had to get him to hospital. And I just had this vision of this drunk old grandma, you know, yuck, getting this kid, baby, in a a taxi, you know, and having to take him to hospital. And that's this vision I had. And I just... um, then and there I just got on my hands and knees and just prayed please God help me stop you know I was desperate the gift of desperation I had that night 23rd of June 2017 and I just prayed and something happened and I I said this at a meeting once and no one batted an eyelid but I said there was just a voice and there was this light and that that was the spiritual awakening they talk about Because I, the next day I went to an AA meeting and I had lost the urge to drink. I'd lost the obsession to drink. And I've got goosebumps. Don't tell me that that doesn't happen because that really happened. And that's when you believe in the higher power. Because I couldn't have done that on my own. No, you know, that wasn't my voice. That was God or higher power or whatever. But someone spoke to me and and there was, and, and I had, I felt all warm and fuzzy and, there was this light like I could see myself from outside myself and there was this light that was the cure you know this is it it's done never look back <laughs> I mean obviously things like the oils I think fuck, I would love a drink right now you know but it goes really quickly mm. you know but I mean will you always have those thoughts you're a lot You've done it a lot longer than me.
0: Well, for me, uh, uh, every now and again you get a pang, but it's never for one.
1: Oh, exactly. That's why you know you can't just have one. You
0: know what that... would be
1: the point of having one? Exactly. You'd have... you'd.
0: And then it becomes less about the oils and more about am I getting oh,
1: what I need. It's all about you and <laughs> getting, you know, when can I get my next drink? And I can't stand, you know, I, d- I mean... I've been to four concerts now sober, and I've loved it because I've seen everything and I can remember what they sing. And I wasn't at a bar looking at someone's back or lining up at the bloody Portaloo's yeah, yeah, yeah. drunk, yeah. you know, getting three wines to take back in at the bar at Rod Laver. I would get three wines because one wouldn't last long enough yeah, 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 yeah. you know your whole life is about the fucking alcohol yeah. and everything else is secondary and it's who wants to live like that I mean who wants to be that powerless who wants something like alcohol I mean to, well, to I run your you whole life
0: until it becomes that point right mm. for so long it's like it's, as you're saying it's built into our culture and mm. when you're good at it it's sort of something to hang your hat on for a while and until you kind of want more for yourself, you don't really realise that not being able to function knowing that I've got one in my hand, but where's the next one?
1: Yeah, always thinking about the next one. And if I was anywhere, I would have a drink and I'd be chatting to someone. I could never listen to their conversation because I'm thinking about my next drink, you know? I couldn't concentrate on anyone. All I could concentrate on was that drink in my hand and where the fuck am I going to get the next one? Or how how long will I take to drink this so that that I can get the next one faster? You know? I mean...
0: You know what blew my mind when I stopped drinking was that when I'd go out, <laughs> how slowly people drank. Oh. I thought everyone drank at our pace.
1: I thought everyone got blind drunk like me. <laughs> yeah. I thought everyone just did that. I look at people now. They haven't changed. They still have their two glasses. Mm. And that's all they need. And they'll be having a great time, yeah. and I, that's always fascinated me. How people can just have two glasses and have fun. Yeah, that's not fun. That's just so boring. Yeah, you know, you need two bottles or two <laughs> casks.
0: <laughs> You've got to see the sun come up, fuck it all. Yeah, that's not a night.
1: But you know, I'd be dead, I'd be dead, or I'd be brain dead, or both, if I kept going. Because you know, that's that's all to stop. It's not like I'm young, stopping. I mean, in the rooms now, there's so many young kids, you know, in Melbourne in those meetings. There's 23-, 24-, 25-year-old kids, so many of them, that have had the gift of desperation and nearly died on it or have alcoholism in their DNA that have just doing the preventative measure by stopping now rather than having to go through all the yets, you know. So sensible.
0: This guy that was the first guy that took me to my first meeting in New York is uh, in my acting class, and he oh, I think I was 30. He would have been 18, and he'd always tell me, you got a problem. And I'd be like, fuck off. Like, you're a kid. What do you fucking know about drinking? But he was the first one. Yeah. Then he's still sober now. Yeah. And he, yeah, he nearly died at, like, you know, early, early.
1: Yeah, well, that's what happens. They have this this gift of desperation early but you know I've done I mean I've just done so many great things since I've been sober you know I would never go back never think about going back because you know I mean I'm doing a Bachelor of Arts now online I, I don't know how to get into the course but I'm sure once I do it'll be great 24 fucking subjects I could take 10 years you know, I've done courses. I'm writing a book. I've, I've, um, you know, did a did a play at the arts centre. Did th- you with a whole group of people when I was 128 days sober, called all the sex I've ever had. Six. I was the youngest. The oldest was 86 of us on stage. We did eight productions, uh, produced by this Canadian guy who does this in all local areas and uses all local people to do the filming and production and, and us, cast. But it was our whole life story in script and not all about sex but about what we'd done in our lives and it goes year by year. So the six of us with microphones on the stage would talk about, um, we rehearsed for a long, long, long time, would talk about different times in our lives when the year came up, the person that related to the story would talk And it was 120 days, 128 days sober I was. And everyone on the stage was drinking. Everyone in the audience was drinking. It was at the arts centre. Everyone, people were queuing up to meet me at the end of the show to talk to me. Women alcoholics who wanted to just shake my hand and congratulate me. Women crying because I told my whole story about the alcoholism in in the, it was two and a half hour show. And they were queuing up to meet me. It was just the most amazing feeling how many women are out there that, because you can be honest and talk about it, because it's so taboo still. You know, still in this day and age, it's sort of taboo for especially women to talk about it. You so, know, so drinking. The drinking. Yeah. The drinking. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was. Um, It was, yeah, my story was mostly about the drinking. I mean, how many women related and how many people wanted to talk, how many of them wanted to talk to me about their situation? Because, you know, they felt if you can be that honest about it, then it's sort of okay. Because women still hide behind their alcoholism, they won't admit it and they still say they don't have a problem, even though they're doing these things that are typical of alcoholics. Yeah, it's not like you you can be a little bit of an alcoholic. It's like being a little bit pregnant, you know. You are an alcoholic.
0: Well, I think also, but, like, I think it's, um, there's it an age where you can just, it seems to be like, oh, they're just a rap, you know, uh,
1: uh,
0: they're just like Yahoo, having fun. And then you get a bit older and that sort of starts, to, you can't disguise it anymore. Yeah. It starts to become more apparent because everyone else is doing other things. Yeah. And, still and you that. keep
1: going. Yeah. Yeah, like that's like in my crowd. All the, Everyone else just started doing other stuff and yet I couldn't, I was just the same as I was, you know, right through. Just the drinking just never stopped. And and I think the the part the reason that you don't stop sooner is because you're just scared to. Because you don't think you're going to have a life when you stop because what will you do and who will your friends be?
0: I never thought I could come back to talk, eh? no. I No. Ne- I just was like... I can't do it
1: because you got sober in New York, L.A. L.A. I
0: was still drinking in New York, even though I got banned at school from drinking. The teachers were like, Geelong grammar." They, no, New York. They'll keep. They were like, We'll, kick you, yeah, we'll uh, kick you out of acting school. Acting school if you keep behaving like this." Oh, okay. In the second year, so I had to stop to keep my sp- my plays, and then yeah, when I went to L.A., ended up the wheels really fell off. So,
1: and so you. That's why you went over there for drama school, acting school yeah how long was that course
0: two years yeah full time two years How long
1: know. were you over there uh
0: probably seven and a half years, maybe a bit longer yeah,
1: and you did what what did you do beside the film the film and
0: oh the film was that came later, so I so went over you... did acting school and then um I went to l a and I did a few plays and uh and then that was, that, took up, that was the year you got done, first year out of school, and then the diabetes happened. And I, I'd come home for Christmas for the first time in two years. And uh, uh, yeah, so then luckily I was home when I found that out, and then they weren't going to let me come back to America. And then three months later, I was like, so adamant, fuck you guys. I'm out of here, and I'd been sober for a year. And I just wanted to go back to my life in the states. And uh, there was a producer there that um, my uncle knew well, and he gave me a job learning about the business. And so I I wasn't feeling very creative, so I'd stopped acting for a bit because you know you get diabetes, and I felt felt like you know I wasn't drinking. I had diabetes. I felt like a fucking loser. And uh, so I thought, well, I got to learn something. And so I thought this is a good opportunity to learn about the business. So I worked for this production company in LA for. For years, um, and then slowly but surely, like
1: I didn't know any of that.
0: Confidence started coming back, and I started <laughs> going back to acting school in LA. And then, yeah, it's just been, anyway, a journey.
1: So, do you have? Is are there any videos or film of the plays you did over there? No. Anything to watch?
0: No, no. The play. I don't <laughs> think plays <laughs> ever tra- translate.
1: No. <laughs> <We're> <laughs> you going, kind of got to be okay.
0: there. Yes, so anyway, yeah, so anyway, I didn't think I could ever come back to Torquay and. You did? Yeah, here we are.
1: And it's all right. It's It's worked out all
0: right. It's great because everyone else, you know, as you said before, has grown up. And so all that pressure of all the people that running amok with have all got families and stuff now and they don't really. I just thought that I had such an expectation to be a certain guy in a certain way and no one would accept me otherwise. Yeah. And, you know, everyone gets on with their life and, you know... I they don't just... notice you. No. Just Everyone's
1: gonna... so busy looking after themselves and yeah. in their own heads that no one... I mean, if still now I get embarrassed because I, have... I want to leave somewhere where I shouldn't be leaving because I get bored and I'm not talking with all the people drinking and I can't be bothered talking to them because I can't think of anything to talk about because they're talking... Drinking talk, not drunk talk, but drinking talk, and they're all on the same level, and you're not on that level because you're not drinking, and yet they don't understand that.
0: Every now and again, you can match it energetically if you're in a certain frame of mind. I can, like, I I can sort of tune in and and be a little, you know, I don't know.
1: I've got to do that more. I'm I'm from the most social being on the planet. I've become the most anti-social person on the planet, and I hate it. You're You're
0: not allowed to not have a drink in your hand. You've got to have a drink that looks like a drink. Yeah. Then no one says anything to you. Yeah. Because if people start going, well, how, you know, if you're standing there empty-handed, you look like a fucking idiot. Yeah. So if you've got a drink in your hand that looks like a drink yeah. and puts everyone else at ease, they stop going, well, why don't you drink? Because that's confront confrontational in, to some degree for some people who are drinking if you're not. Well, why
1: not? I, why are you not having a fucking but drink? But and I don't have, have thing, that anymore anyway. I don't sort of have people around me that... In those situations anymore? Yeah, because I don't go anywhere or do anything.
0: (laughs) I don't go too many places. I don't.
1: I don't go out. I mean, you know. You went to the oils. Oils that was huge. Yeah, yeah, and I was really nervous. You know, I was nervous going there. I was nervous being there. You know, it's just a weird feeling. You
0: did a play.
1: Yeah, I've done it. Yeah.
0: You putting yourself out there.
1: I've done a lot of. Yeah, I'm. I'm doing all right.
0: Well, how's the book going?
1: Good book's going well, except I've got to I've got to um, get the first fifty pages to this publisher I spoke to, and she'll tell me yay or nay. That's
0: super exciting.
1: Yeah, I spoke to Jen Hutchinson, Her name is. She's got a publishing house in Melbourne who deals with uh, mature, aged, first time writers, autobiographic writers, which is just me in a nutshell. So she rang me personally, which I was thrilled about, um, and because I contacted her on Facebook but anyway she rang me um, when I couldn't believe I was speaking to her Um, she's written a book called Motherling um, uh, about taking her son died of a heroin overdose at 30 years old 32 years old so she took his ashes and did the Camino Trail as a pilgrim and scattered his ashes right up the trail she's written a book about it called Motherling and I contacted her on Facebook it's a great book I couldn't put it down and said I've just finished your book I, th- I just I read it I read it in one sitting I thought it was spectacular and she rang me personally from that note I wasn't expecting her to ring and we had this really long conversation she said what makes your book different because I told her that you know the storyline what makes it different you know which got me because how many books are written about female alcoholics beginning and ending, you know, stories, the happy ending stories. She said there's a lot of them. I've read them all, I know. Um, so, she, you know, what makes it different? So she said, look, just send me the first 50 pages and I'll tell you whether it's a viable uh, product or whether it's just, you know, a passion of yours, whether it can be turned into a, a you know, a book, a viable But you know what's the word she used? I can't remember. Um, And and that was six months ago, uh, four months ago, and I still haven't sent it to her. So I've got to do it.
0: What 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 are you pausing on? There's
1: 175,000 words in this book. She said we actually only deal with 80,000 words. She said, "Have you doubled up? Have you repeated yourself? Are there any characters you could uh, take out?" And I said, "No, none. (laughs) They all have to be in there." it's um i think it's good but i've got no idea if anyone else would think it was good you know it's sometimes i'm reading it and i think that's just a load of crock other times i think that is brilliant that's really good that's really clever that's really funny you know it's hard yeah. when you you know you've got no idea i i just all my life people have said to me you should write a book you know like the 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 stories I've got. I think you it's know, great. I'm meeting Rod Stewart and all that stuff. But I should, it should be in a book. So that's how it started. Well, get her the 50. So I've got to get it done. Yeah, I've got to get to Jen Hutchinson and just see what she thinks. It starts off with um, excerpts from di- my diary over the years of uh, how my drinking was affecting me and how it was affecting everything in my life. And so little Kate, blonde Kate uh, Hall, who used to work at The Rock, you know Belinda, Emma, and Kate, the three girls. Blonde Kate has written a book from darkness. I don't know if you've seen it on Facebook about a GLBT books. She she came out at 39 as gay, Kate. So the book's um, it's really good. I read it recently. Um, she read the first 50 pages of my book and she said the the excerpts from your diary are so powerful. Yeah, that's how it starts. I'm pregnant. I don't the last thing I want to do is drink but I can't stop, things like that, and the date. So that's sort of like 40 years of those. That's how the book starts, so it gives you an idea of how alcohol's affecting me from the get-go, you know.
0: Have you always journaled, kept journals and yeah. diaries? Yeah, yeah. Because just to draw a parallel, like in Greenlight with McConaughey,
1: got to he, read. That. he's
0: always kept also... Mm. Journals, and so when he snips back to things exactly like you just said with a date, you know, a thought on this date and this mm. point in time, it's, it works really well.
1: Yeah, yeah, I've always kept journals. Oh, that's good. A lot of it I can't read. <laughs> <laughs> Slurge. Right writing. <laughs> but yeah, I'll get there. I've got to. I've got to make that a priority. I really do, because you know, I could maybe sell the film rights to Hollywood. <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'll just get the 50 pages to Jen.
0: Susie Brown, I'm going to say thank you so much. Uh,
1: Thanks, Johnny. That was amazing. (laughs) 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 My whole head's spinning.
0: Oh, Okay, I'm going to press stop. Well, there you have it. There was my chat with none other than Susie Brown. Susie Brown, if you're out there, thank you so much for coming over and being so... Open and honest um, and sharing with me uh, always love seeing you and um, i'm I'm super stoked to have got you into the horse's mouth uh, and for whoever else out there in the ethos listening, thank you so much for coming on the journey. Um, I hope this finds you all smiling and well wherever you are in whatever circumstance this finds you um, yeah I mean strange days but not strange days you know uh the world is is what it is uh and we still have each other and um and for me that's the most important thing you know cup of coffee and a good chat and get some waves hang out anyway i hope you're well and i'll see you next time you won't fucking see me i'll speak to you next time check out